In the first reading, we hear how the people of Nineveh repented at the preaching of Jonah. The first reading is from Jonah, the third chapter. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it the message that I tell you. So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh, according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, three days' journey in breadth. Jonah began to go into the city, going a day's journey, and he called out, Yet forty days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. And the people of Nineveh believed God. They called for a fast and put on sackcloth, from the greatest of them to the least of them. When God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he said he would do to them, and he did not do it. This is the word of the Lord. The message for this Sunday, this third Sunday of Epiphany, is going to be based on the Old Testament lesson, this lesson from Jonah. So I'm going to ask that you listen to that lesson again. And as you do so, not that we didn't listen carefully the first time, but once again, an encouragement, listen carefully. How is this an Epiphany lesson? What is, so epiphany is another word for revealed. What is being revealed in this lesson? There's a number of things, but what will be the most important thing being revealed in this lesson? Think about it as you hear the words. Jonah chapter 3. The word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it the message that I tell you. So Jonah arose, and he went to Nineveh, according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, three days' journey in breadth. Jonah began to go into the city, going a day's journey, and he called out, Yet forty days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. The people of Nineveh believed God. They called for a fast. They put on sackcloth. From the greatest of them to the least of them. The word reached the king of Nineveh, and he arose from his throne. He removed his robe, he covered himself with sackcloth, and he sat in ashes. He issued a proclamation, and he published throughout Nineveh, saying, By the decree of the king and his nobles, let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. Let them not feed or drink water, but let man and beast be covered in sackcloth and let them call out mightily to God. Let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. Who knows? God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. When God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that He had said He would do to them, and He did not do it. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly. He was angry. He prayed to the Lord, saying, O Lord, is this not what I said while I was yet in my country? That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish, for I knew that you are a gracious God, merciful, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love, 
and relenting from disaster. The ending of the reading of the book of Jonah. Now in the message time. Been at the Razorback uh, football stadium as well as the basketball stadium. And something kind of curious to people new to the stadiums uh, here's one side of the stadium says Arkansas and the other side says Razorbacks and one side says Arkansas and the other one echoes Razorbacks and it goes back as soon as someone says Arkansas the other one says Razorbacks that's exactly what I was thinking about this Bible lesson every time someone that I know in this world says Jonah they say whale every time They don't get all the rest of the story. They say Jonah, they say big fish. They say Jonah, they say whale. It just goes back and forth. That's just the immediate um, presentation of this. People are focused on what kind of a fish, what kind of a whale, if they get technical, fish or whale, there's a difference. They're wondering, is it scientifically possible? Is there a fish big enough? Is there enough air in the belly to support a human life long enough? What about the stomach acids? Really? I'm thinking, no way. For whatever it's worth, I believe it happened. I'm your pastor. I believe that it happened as the book of Jonah says. And I believe it with a greater level of certainty because Jesus tells us it happened. In Matthew chapter 12, verse 39 to 40, Jesus is talking to his friends about a historic event. He says, Matthew, here's the words. Jesus answered them, An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign. No sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For just as Jonah's was three days and three nights in the belly of a great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. Jesus spoke about it as if it was a historic event. And I believe it to be just that. That said, I'm really not all that impressed with God being able to have a big fish or a big whale. I'm just not. God makes big things. That's what God does. God has been, in hacti- has been acting in history in, in ways that people have not understood from the beginning. For a long time, humans thought, with all their great intelligence and science of the day, that the earth was in the center and everything revolved around it. They thought the earth was flat. There's all kinds of things that humans have thought until they've been enlightened by understandings. Our lack of understanding of how these things happen does not hinder the power, intelligence, goodness, or the sovereignty of God or the love of God to make things happen. I don't have to understand some of these things I believe. Now, what makes a profound impression on me is not so much, again, about Jonah or the whale. What makes the biggest impression on me about from this story so big that it kind of blows up my mind. When I see the stars and the vastness of the universe and they do these Hubble telescopes and they see that there's like more grains of sand in this little particular view of the universe than there is on the face of the planet, that kind of blows up my mind. This lesson in ways kind of blows up my mind with the bigness of God. And it has everything to do with an epiphany Everything to do with the love of God being that big. 
Now, in order to get that out of this story, we've got to know more about the story. Jonah, he hated the people living in Nineveh. I mean, with just about as much hatred as a person could have, that we would understand Jonah hated them. They were considered Jonah's enemy. They were considered the enemy of the people of God because the Ninevites, the Assyrian people, had come down and wrecked the top half of his, his beloved people. Israel fell. Judah had not, but Israel had. Judah bought them way out. They paid gold and silver so they wouldn't get wrecked. So that is what has happened. They were an enemy of God in the, in the minds of the people. Now, some more historians, when they think about this period of time, these 800s to the 700s B.C., the, is, the Assyrian army was considered the first modern organized army. There's a lot of armies beforehand, but in, in our sense of a modern organized army, they would be considered or debated amongst themselves as being the first they had ranks and order, not just imperial people, knights on horses charging in the battles. They had this order, then they had another level of rank, they had another level of rank divided out. They had specialties in their armies that were coordinated in their tacks. They had divisions, and they had tactics about employing this one first, this one this, and the communications between the, and the activity of preparations for war. First modern army, this Assyrian people. The, Serbian, the Assyrian army moved from a Bronze Age to an Iron Age, an Iron Age one. Their iron weapons prevailed. They started using iron to wrap their wheels so their chariots could go harder and faster with weapons attached to the side. They incorporated long spears as never been done. They used missile shooting machines and archery in mass. They had whole columns and divisions of chariots that were coordinated they invented battering rams because they were so successful beating the armies and the cities were the only thing left and they had fortified cities. They invented massive um, battering rams and they traveled with them. They had towers that they moved with them, whole towers that their slaves would move. So when they got to the city, they could go up the tower over the wall and conquer the city on the inside. Mobile towers. This was the Assyrian army that had wrecked the northern kingdom that Jonah hated. Asher was their God, the name of their God. He was their God of war. Every time they conquered a people, the way they saw it is, is that your small little God just got wrecked by our army because our God's bigger than your God. That's how they treated it. And everybody who fled before them, they said, yeah, you take you and your little gods with you because Asher is our God and Asher is dominating this world. Either you become a believer or you're dead type of a deal. Asher was their God. The Syrian people, the kings, often took Asher to be their first names or part of their names. And through their generals and through their armies, the Assyrians brutally crushed their enemies. The king, one of the kings in this period, King Asher, get the, Asher the name of God, Asher and Assyr Paul, all one word, the second. He assured all of his enemies and any rebellions whom he encountered that they'd be crushed in such a way as that they'd never again do it. Here's some words that was written. We have their, they wrote, they took stories, they wrote it down. In one of his expeditions, Asher Nasir Paul II described how he faced the enemy. They were being flayed, which means they're peeling the skins off of their body. Watched to slowly die. They were impaled on sticks up the backside, stops in the top of the skull, and paraded. That was a slow one. They could have been decapitated. 
thousands were burned alive. Thousands burned alive. Here's the quote out of this part that I want to share with you. He wrote, this king, I felled 3,000 of their fighting men with a sword, which means he sliced 3,000 men with a sword. They watched him die. I carried off prisoners, possessions, oxen, and cattle from them by the tens of thousands. I burned many captives from them. I captured many troops alive. From some I cut off their arms. From some I cut off their hands. From others I cut off their noses, their ears, and their extremities. I gouged out the eyes of many troops. I made one pile of the living to burn, and I had another pile of the heads of those I had killed. I hung their bodies and their heads on trees around their cities. I burnt their adolescent boys and their girls. I raised, destroys, burnt, and consumed their cities. That was the pride of the Assyrian king. That was his words, documenting one episode. Those who were spared, they were taken away, become slaves. We've said up to over 120,000 of the northern kingdom people were taken to the other side of Assyria to become slaves. Maybe they would become members of the army when they fought in the distant lands, carrying their weapons of war and their war machines. Jonah hated these people. He hated the people of Assyria and Nineveh. And it's completely as someone like me who's now 2,700 years afterwards can identify with his hatred. I do. If someone, if an army, if another nation came into this part of my world and wrecked my people like that, if they came into this community and did that thing to you, the people that I know, I love, my sons, my wife, I would hate them too. I'd want them dead. I want their families dead. And I want their houses burned to the ground. That's a line from the Godfather. That's what I'd want. Maybe some of the members of Jonah's family had been wrecked by these Assyrians. Maybe some of his friends. Maybe um, he had watched some of his countrymen be burned, maimed, tortured, or enslaved. Maybe so. They were Jonah's enemy. They were the enemy of God's people, and therefore they were the enemy of God, thought Jonah. Into that scene enters the word of the Lord. Jonah 1, verses 1 and 2. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, and it said, Arise, Jonah, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against them, for their evil has come up before me. Well, that was the end of that. That was verse 1 and 2. It's like, seriously? We've been watching this evil for a long time. God recognizes as I've watched their, their evil rise before me. Now to that, Jonah's response, he refuses. More than refusing, he gets on a boat and he travels to the most distant, unknown place known to human beings at that time, the other side of Spain. God wants him here. He's going in the farthest direction in the opposite direction, Tarshish. Why would Jonah refuse? Why would Jonah get in a boat and go the opposite direction? Why would you? Why would you not want to do what God would ask you to do? Is it that you don't want to walk 600 miles through a hot, dangerous desert? I don't know if I'd really want to do that. That's a long way. 
Is it because maybe when you get there, they're going to treat you like they've been treating all these other people? That they're going to peel your skin off? You're a prophet of that people's God? I got an answer for you, little man. I'm going to peel your little skin off. Tell me about your God. I'll cut off your hands. I'll cut out your eyes. I'll cut off your ears and your nose, your other extremities, man. I'll stick you on a pole and parade you around the city. Maybe Jonah didn't want to go because he didn't like the fate he might have awaited him. Hmm. Maybe. And this one is a far reach, but it is a subtle, undeniable truth in the lesson. Maybe Jonah did not want to go to Nineveh to tell them about God's imminent judgment because maybe they would repent. And if they repented, maybe God would spare them the painful, terrifying end of life that Jonah had intended for them. God, the God of love, God's mercy, God's forgiveness is exactly what Jonah refused to offer them. He went the other way. Now, after a short vacation in the sea, that's a playful little humorous piece, Jonah spit up on the shore. Jonah begins then a long journey. At that point, from that point, the closest part of the sea would be about 300 miles, 250 to 300 miles to Nineveh. So from about there, about 300 miles, then he begins his journey. Now this is the part where we can use some imagination. He smells like a dead, rotting fish bait. I mean, the smell of fish penetrates his sin in such ways that it's not going to be removed quickly or covered up. I've experienced that level of fish. One of my previous Swedish congregations prepared lutefisk for their big Swedish fest. They soaked those hard pieces of salted fish. I think they moved them from city curb to city curb to make sure every dog in the county had their chance. They soaked them in water, these disgusting smelling slabs of something, and they stunk the church for the whole week and a half before this Swedish event. And then for another month afterwards, we had visitors who were not familiar with the Swedish customs and came into the church and said, is this a fish bait place? I mean, do you sell? We have lakes, right? Just a mile down the road. It smelled. That fish smelled stayed. If you ever felt, if you've ever baited with catfish bait, those chunks of canned, stinking, rotting fish with your fingers, your fingers will smell like that for, for a long time, right? All right. So now with that in your minds, Here we got Jonah. There's a good chance that if he's in the belly of a whale, that there's stomach acid. And so he's probably, stomach acids will bleach out things. So there's a good chance that he's bleached out. There's a good chance that the stomach acids could have made the hair fall off of his head, his eyebrows, his eyelashes, his arms, his body. He smells like dead fish. He looks like regurgitated fish bait. With a grudge in his heart, with a grudge that is within him all that he is, now he is walking to Nineveh. When he finally arrives at these great walls, his hate and his harshness of heart remains. He preaches the Lord's message, 
But his message is going to be the hardest, most offensive, threatening, short, with no explanations, hate-filled presentation of God's message known. He approaches the city gates and he's probably shouting at the guards of the gates because they had guards over the gates with all the heads and the bodies strung around as their trophies. Guards of the gates, 40 days more and Nineveh's overthrown. Pointing at him as he shouts, this fish bait stinking little man. He probably goes inside where the merchants are. 40 days more, Nineveh's overthrown. He probably goes all the way through the city to the middle of the city, to the edges of the city, and one by one he shouts, 40 days and Nineveh's overthrown. He's probably smiling in his heart thinking, you're dead, you're dead, you're dead, you're going to die, you're going to die, and you're going to die. He's hatred and he's waiting for God's wrath to pounce on them. 40 days, you're dead. The Assyrians, the Ninevites, they do not know about God's commandments. Jonah hasn't even mentioned about his commandments. Jonah hasn't mentioned anything about God, actually. They do not hear anything about this God of the Israelites or of Jonah. They're not introduced to God by a pleasant-speaking, pleasant-looking, wise-appearing man in golden robes. No, they get Jonah. A harsh, most disagreeable message and his greatest and Jonah's greatest fear happens. The worst preacher speaking, the worst sermon in history is actually now heard by this people of Assyria. God, through his prophet Jonah, works a miraculous epiphany. The king the royalty, the religious ones, the people, even the animals in the city, not only listen to Jonah, but they repent. They submit to this God and they repent of their sins against this God and God's people. They ask God for forgiveness. They make every effort to physically reflect sorrow in their hearts By their fasting, they would not eat or drink. That's a desert. By wearing uncomfortable, itchy clothes. By putting ashes on their body and by asking, pleading for forgiveness. The whole city, from the king to the slave, the rich to the poor, the old to the infant, everyone turns from their ways and they turn to the ways of Jonah's God seeking mercy and pardon. And that's exactly what they receive. Jonah saw the Assyrians as his personal enemy. God saw them not as his enemy, but as lost. Jonah wanted them wrecked. God wanted the Assyrian people to be saved. And in God's good pleasure, that's what they do. Jonah chapter 4, verse 2. Jonah's prayer to the Lord. We heard this today. O Lord, is this not what I said when I was yet in my own country? That is why I made my way toward Spain. I know that you are a gracious God. I know that you are merciful. I know that you are slow to anger, that you are bounding in steadfast love, and you want to relent from destruction, Lord. And he remains there bitter and angry. In each of today's Bible lessons, there is an epiphany. 
Actually, within every part of our liturgy, God is being revealed. That same Old Testament God, merciful, slow to anger, abounding in love. God reveals His love for us to see, for the world to receive. Each of the lessons, the people who listened to that epiphany, they had the ability to hear it. Not only did they hear it, but they, were, they heard this invitation to repent, and they repented. And the option to leave their way and follow the right way of God was not only given, but followed. Now, all of this said, the book of Jonah ends purposefully without an ending. When you get home, read it. It's only like four chapters. It's a short read. When you get to the end of chapter 4, God has relented. He's not going to destroy the people. Jonah's sitting outside the city, grumbling, sulking, angry that God's not going to burn them like Sodom and Gomorrah. And it ends. Like that. Close book. At this point, all we know is this. We know that the Assyrians have repented and that they, were, they are receiving the love and mercy of God. That's happened. We don't know about Jonah. Here's a curious thing. He doesn't see in himself what the Assyrians need. Will Jonah see his need for God's mercy? Will Jonah see his need of God's love? We don't know about the Israelites because eventually Jonah makes his way back. We have the book. It's been told amongst the Jewish people and now amongst the Christian Jews. We have this story. So it got back. It's been known. But we don't know about the Israelites who are listening to Jonah. Will the Israelites repent, as God's always asking them to do? Will the people of God repent and believe that his love is bigger or not? We don't know the end of that one either. Not from the book. And we actually don't even know about the listeners today. We've all heard the story today. Will we repent? Will we trust that God's love And mercy is bigger than our capacity to sin and to destroy? Will we turn our ways with confession and repentance and receive mercy and participate in God's will? Or not? We don't know. That's the gift of the book. The Old Testament. What we'll hold on to is this, that God is gracious, merciful, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love. And we're going to add to that Jesus' words from today's lesson. Repent. Believe the good news. What we do with that, the book is our story, the sermon time, it's over. I have no conclusion. That's the conclusion. We've heard the news. It's our choice. God help us be his people. Amen.